Good morning, Hoffmantown Church. I am Justin Pearson, um, missionary in Lisbon, Portugal. Um, and since we're in Portugal, a few people have asked me to do a little bit of Portuguese. So I'm going to do a little greeting. Bom dia, Igreja Hoffmantown. Estou muito grato por ter a oportunidade de partilhar a palavra de Deus convosco. I just said, good morning, Hoffmantown Church. I'm very grateful for the opportunity to share the word of God with you today. Uh, I pray that what I have for you, what God has given me to say, will bless you, will encourage you, and maybe even challenge you a little bit. Um, my wife, Julie, and I, as has been said, along with our two sons, Luca and Oliver, are missionaries in Lisbon, Portugal, and we're supported by Hoffmantown Church. We are very, very thankful for the role that Hoffmantown plays in our ministry in Lisbon. We know that without partner churches like Hoffmantown, we couldn't be doing what God has called us to do there. And so, thank you. Um, we got to share a little bit more about our ministry yesterday, but let me say our main goal there is to make and multiply disciples and churches through the local church. Um, but if you have any more questions, feel free to come talk to us afterwards. We'll be around. More than just being supported by Hoffmantown, though, as has been said, I grew up here. My family are still members here. Uh, my sister and I, as kids, spent lots of time up here doing Christmas performances, just like the one my, everyone did this weekend. Um, I was baptized right up there about 28 years ago. Um, my mom volunteered in the children's ministry, and so we were pretty much here whenever the doors were open. This place, the halls, were my playground, much to the chagrin of the maintenance staff. <laughs> this church, so many of you who've been my Sunday school teachers, my friends, my coworkers, ah, holds a special place in my heart. I worked here right up until going to seminary, and then meeting my wife, and going to the mission field. Um, so when I've heard about the season that the church has gone through, it seems like you're working hard to come out of it, but I was grieved at what you have experienced. And it's hard, I wanna be able to help, but we're so far away. But what I know that I can do and what I have been doing is praying for you all. Praying that God would strengthen and unite you through this season, that he would be glorified in Hoffmantown Church. I hope and pray again that what I have today will encourage you. My text for this morning is Colossians 3, 1 through 17, and I've titled my message, Raised with Christ. But I have a lot, of, uh, a lot to say, but a lot of background work to do. So if you want to open your Bibles and follow along with me, I'll be starting in Colossians 1. We got a lot of ground to cover, so let's get started. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. It's helpful, uh, I hear, that some of the Sunday school classes have been studying Colossians, so you can check my work and uh, you can, you've already got a little bit of the background. Um, unlike many of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote, he most, where he, he wrote to churches that he started or people that he knew, he didn't know the church in Colossae. From what we can see in scripture, the church was started as a fruit of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. In Acts 
Paul says, or the scripture says about Paul's ministry, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. All the residents of Asia heard the gospel, and the Colossian church was fruit of that work. One of those residents in particular was a man named Epaphras. He was from Colossae. He heard the gospel. He responded in faith and returned to his hometown. He brought the message of the gospel back to his people. Paul does his normal greeting in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 1, and then he says, We thank, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul says that the church learned the gospel from Epaphras and that it was bearing fruit among them. The fruit that it was bearing was faith in Jesus Christ, love for other believers, and a hope for the future, or the hope laid up in heaven, as it says. No doubt other people from Colossae heard the message no doubt they were impacted by Paul's work. But let's stop and think about the effect that one man transformed by the gospel had on a city, and actually probably two other cities as well. Epaphras, transformed by the gospel, the good news of the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, leaves Ephesus and returns to Colossae with a message, the very gospel that saved him. What did he do with the message? He shared it. He taught it faithfully. And now Paul is writing to the church that started because of this faithful, transformed man's witness. Take a moment to let that sink in. A whole city, a church, because of one man being transformed, taking the message we know that God is the one who saves. God is the one who does the work through the gospel. But just think of the impact of this one man. Not only in Colossae, in Laodicea, in Hierapolis, the two other cities, they were able to hear the gospel as well. Think about it. A whole region transformed because of one faithful man bringing the message of the gospel and sharing it. Think of what a whole church could do. Paul also says of Epaphras in Colossians 4, verses 12 and 13, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. So now Paul says that Epaphras is acting as a faithful minister to him on behalf of these three churches. Why did he need it? Well, like Paul did with many of his letters, he was writing from a Roman prison because he was sharing the gospel. 
could be that hearing that Paul was in prison, these concerned churches sent Pastor Epaphras to go demonstrate their love to him through Epaphras. But even if that was an outcome of Epaphras' visit, it seems that it wasn't the main purpose. From the letter, it seems that Pastor Epaphras was sent by these churches to address a serious problem. It seems as though these churches were being assaulted by false teachers of various kinds. And that is why, right after Paul acknowledges the faith of the church, that the gospel is, is bearing fruit, he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And again, why he said that Epaphras was always struggling on their behalf in his prayers so that they may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. There are various views of what the false teaching was, but it was probably a mix of um, people trying to add Jewish traditions on to the Christian faith, like, like we see in Galatians, and some sort of local mystical religions. But whatever the teaching was, it was clear from what Paul says here in Colossians that they were diminishing the role of Christ and adding other requirements to the church so that they could gain some sort of spiritual elite status. We know the problem was bad enough that Epaphras went, sought out Paul, his teacher, to help protect the church from the dangers of these false teachers. So in the rest of chapters 1 and 2, Paul reminds the Colossian church of just who Jesus is and what he's done for them. So let's do the same thing. Just talk about Jesus for a minute, who he is and what he's done for us. I don't think I can say it better than the Bible does. So I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 15 through 23, make some observations and clarifications along the way. He starts out saying of Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God. This means that Jesus is God in the flesh. He came and made God the Father, who is spirit, who we cannot see. He made him visible. God fully revealed himself to us through Jesus. Jesus is God. And then he says, he's the firstborn of all creation. The way the word firstborn is used here, it, it's, uh, it means that he's supreme over all creation. It doesn't mean that he's one of God's creations. He's not the first of God's creations. He is supreme over all creation, unlike some religions try to say. It's a statement of rank and position. And then he goes on to say, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is the creator God. Just like John says in his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Jesus created all things by his power and is currently holding all things together by that same power. The universe doesn't fall apart. We don't turn to dust because Jesus is holding us together. And Paul goes on in verse 18 of Colossians 1. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The church, the invisible, universal church made up of believers past, present, and future, which is made visible by the local church like Hoffmantown, was started by Jesus and is made up of people who are given new life through Jesus' resurrection. He is the leader of the church. He is the senior pastor of every church. He is the source of life of the church. He is supreme. Jesus is over it all. And then he says, in verses 19 and 20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Again, Paul says that Jesus is fully God, and through him, through his blood shed on the cross, we are reconciled to God the Father and have peace with him. Why do we need to have peace made for us? Why do we need to be reconciled to God? Paul goes on in verses 21 to 23. And you who were once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. Without faith in the person and work of Jesus, God made flesh in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection, and his eventual return to rule, we are alienated and hostile to God. In, in Romans, Paul says that we are God's enemies without Christ. But what does it say here that God does for his enemies? He came in the flesh and died, paying the penalty we deserved for our rebellion and evil deeds so that we could have our relationship with God restored. By faith in Christ, we are made blameless. In verse uh, 13 of chapter 1, it says that God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus, his beloved son. This is who Paul presents Jesus to be in the face of these false teachers. He is the creating, sustaining, sacrificing, redeeming, reconciling, and ruling God-man. He says in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, because of this, therefore, because of who Jesus is and what he's done, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul told the church earlier that his ministry, his work was to present everyone mature in Christ. And this is what it looks like, being rooted in Christ as we walk in him. 
The false teachers, however, were offering something more, something else. They were saying that Christ was good, maybe, but they had some secret spiritual wisdom and insight to go to a higher level of spirituality. Throughout the letter, Paul uses the false teachers' language against them. They were saying that they had the secret knowledge. Paul says the only secret, the only mystery that needed to be revealed, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior King that the Jews were waiting for, and that the Gentiles, anyone who wasn't Jewish, could be part of the riches of God's kingdom through faith in Jesus. As Paul says, to them, to those who are being saved, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We don't go beyond Christ to some higher spiritual level. We are being made like Christ through the new life we have in him. And when he returns, like he promised he would, those of us who have our life in him will share in his kingdom and glory forever. This is our hope in Christ. These are the riches we have. This is the mystery that has already been revealed. Paul moves on to confront another of the false teachers and he warns them to avoid being taken captive by earthly uh, or human traditions and philosophies that distract from Christ. And he reminds the church again that Christ is God and that we as the church, as believers, have been filled with God. So what more do we need? And then he also says we don't need to submit to any traditions like circumcision because Christ has already circumcised our hearts. He has cut off our sinful selves and made us new with him. He did this through his death and his resurrection. We see this represented in baptism. We are put beneath the water. We're buried with Christ in his death, and it's as if our old selves were washed away. And then, through faith, we are raised up out of the water. We are raised with Christ, given new life. Verse 12 of chapter 2 says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And Paul goes on, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul says here that there is no longer any need to submit to any earthly tradition because through Christ, the law has been fulfilled. There's nothing we can do that can add to what Jesus did. No ritual, no obedience can make us more saved, more loved, and more reconciled to God. He says no special practice, no special observance of a day, no diet, no human-made rules can do what Jesus did. He says of these things, these human traditions, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. He says... All these traditions may make you look super spiritual, but they're useless for what you really need, new life, 
a new nature. And this comes from Jesus, from faith in his work for us, his death, and from the new life we receive when we are raised with him. So let's stop and examine ourselves for a moment. Do we think that Christ is sufficient? Are our lives rooted in Christ? Are we walking in Christ? Are we trying to add anything to what we have in Christ to earn favor with God? Now we get to our text. Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Paul has already made the case that Jesus Christ is supreme over everything. Jesus is the creator, sustainer, redeemer, reconciler, ruler. But if we miss this, then what Paul says next is going to look a lot like the self-made religion that, has just, that he has just warned against. We should keep ourselves firmly rooted in Christ and who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We should let these realities affect every area of our lives. But what does that look like? What does it mean to walk or live our lives rooted in Christ? Paul goes on to tell us in, verse, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. He starts in verses 1 through 4 saying, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We are to seek the things that are above and set our minds on them. But what are these things? Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are to set our minds on the values and the character of the kingdom of God and our King Jesus. We've been raised with Jesus. We have received his life and his righteousness. So we don't live as we did, controlled by our sinful flesh or the things that are earthly. But we seek to live as Jesus did, in perfect love and obedience to the Father. Paul, then, Paul says, if then you have been raised with Christ, if then could just be translated since. He's saying that since this is your reality, he's writing to the church, a group of people who have been saved by Jesus. Since this is your reality, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Catch that. Christ is seated. His work is done. The penalty is paid. Death and sin are defeated. And then Christ is at God's right hand. It's a position of authority. Christ is our king waiting for the day that he returns to come and claim his kingdom. And in the meantime, he sits at the Father's side interceding for us. Christ pleads to the Father on our behalf and Romans says that in him there is no condemnation. Paul says that we are to set our minds on things that are above, not on things of this earth. 
This has so much meaning for us now. We are members of a new kingdom. We are to set aside earthly pursuits in pursuit of the kingdom of God. We have new values, a new aim, a new king, and a new hope. Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We can leave behind earthly pursuits because we died with Christ and we know that our future hope, our hope from above, is far greater. We have a life in Christ that is far better than anything that can be offered here. And when he returns to establish his eternal kingdom, we get to share in his glory forever. How do we live that out now? Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He says that because we have died and been raised with Christ, that we are to kill what is earthly in us. And it's only because of what Christ has done for us that we can do this. Remember, Paul says that because we have been raised with Christ, we are to put to death earthly things, not put to death earthly things so we can be raised with Christ. Our salvation comes before our sanctification. Our glorification, our becoming like Christ, will only happen when Jesus comes back for us. But until then, we work to grow more and more like Jesus through God's strength. Paul tells the Philippian church, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. Paul uses very strong language here. He says, put earthly things to death. Just like the author of Hebrews says, lay aside every sin and hindrance. Just like Jesus himself said, if our hand causes us to sin, we cut it off. If our eye causes us to sin, we pluck it out. Dealing with sin in our lives, what is earthly in us is serious business. He doesn't say just put earthly things in second place. Don't pay attention to them as much. Just flirt with them a little bit. He says, put them to death. As the pastor, John Owen, famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's hard to work. It's hard work. It starts with repentance and faith in Jesus, in his work for us daily, maybe hourly, Moment by moment. What earthly things are in the way of you seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Is it a desire for wealth, success, control, or comfort? Is your desire to be successful stronger than your desire to be like Jesus? To be holy. Let me read verse 5 again. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, or lust, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Paul lists these specific sins and says that because of them, God will pour out his wrath on the world. Paul uses such strong language here because he knows how seriously 
God takes sin and how hard it is to truly rid ourselves of sexual sin and covetousness, which God calls idolatry, worshiping another God. Because of how easily, how easy it is to be controlled by these things and how saturated our culture is by them, we have to take drastic measures to make sure we're not taking part in them. Paul reminds them, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. This is important. Paul knew that before this church, before they became followers of Jesus, before we became followers of Jesus, they practiced these very sins. He does two things here. First, he reminds the church of the great grace of God through Jesus that they had received. He reminds them that before they were saved, they too deserved the wrath of God. Because of who we were before Jesus saved us, we should be humble and thankful to God for what he's done. Second, since they used to walk in these sins, he warns them about how seriously they need to take them now. These sins used to be a part of who they were, a part of who we were. So we have to go to extreme measures to make sure they're not a part of who we are now. It says, put to death what is earthly in you. And then he goes on to list another set of sins. He says, but now you must put them all away. This is verse 8 through 10. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. The first list dealt more with holiness and our relationship to God. The second list deals more with our relationship to others, kind of like the first two commandments, love, or the greatest two commandments, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The second list deals more with the unity of the church. Before Christ died, he prayed in the garden that God would unify his people so that the world would believe that who Jesus says he is, who we say Jesus is. Paul talks about the unity in the church in verse 11. He says, here there is not Greek, Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Because of Christ in us, the Christian community should have a unity that transcends every difference, every race, culture, social, or economic standing. This kind of unity in diversity marks the kind of community that makes the world wonder about what we say Jesus, or who we say Jesus is, and what he's done for us. But when we are more characterized by our anger, our wrath, our malice, our slander, our obscene talk, and lies, we tell a completely different story about our Lord, and not a pleasant one either. The community of the church is supposed to make the gospel look attractive to the watching world, but when we're ruled by conflict and division, we just give people another reason to reject our message. Paul tells us to put off the old self and put on the new self. Or because we have already done this, it's like taking off filthy rags 
and putting on beautiful new clothes. When we were raised with Christ, our old sinful self was put away so we don't walk like we did before. Paul says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul tells us to put something on as well. He says, put on then as God's chosen and holy, chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Instead of anger, lies, division. The redeemed community, chosen by God, holy and beloved, fights for unity, being bound together by love. And when there is conflict, because there will be conflict, we are still being renewed. We are still being made like Christ. We treat each other with compassion. We bear with each other and we forgive each other like the Lord forgave us. He forgave us sacrificially. He died on a cross to forgive us. It's costly. And that's how we're supposed to forgive. I know a man who said about some people he had felt had wronged him. Jesus told us to forgive 70 times 7 times. That's 490 times. And they've wronged me that many times, and I've forgiven, me, forgiven them that many times, and now I'm done. I'm done with them. He completely missed the point. It's not about a number. If we are to forgive how God has forgiven us, nothing should stop us from forgiving each other. It's costly. It was for Jesus, too. It's not easy. It wasn't for Jesus either. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. The church is supposed to let the peace of Christ rule in us. And as we remember what he's done for us, we thank God, we worship God. I wonder, is your life, your family, your community, your church more characterized by anger, division, and unforgiveness, or by your unity, by your forgiveness, by your thankfulness, and your love. Paul gives us two ways that we can do this. Uh, I'll go through these quickly. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by teaching and admonishing one another and by singing songs together with all thankfulness. As a church, as a body of Christ, we are to teach each other, to correct each other when we're wrong in love. And then we're to sing to each other. We get to sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. In Christ alone our hope is found. We sing to each other and we disciple each other. We encourage each other. We teach each other the word of God. It's all together. There's an assumption that we are growing together as the body of Christ. In Hebrews, it says, do not neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. We do this together. We teach, we correct, we sing the truths of God, and we give thanks to him because of who he is and what he's done. And then he finishes 
Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything we do is in Jesus' name. We are his ambassadors. We are his representatives here on earth. He's not here physically anymore. He has sent his church to a lost world. So in everything, we represent him. As we live our lives raised and rooted, raised with Christ and rooted in him, everything we do should be in light of who Jesus is. He's the creator, the sustainer, the savior, the redeemer, the ruler, the God-man, what he's done for us. How does your life reflect who Jesus is and what he's done? Let me conclude by repeating what Paul says to the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 6 through 7. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And then, as a request for my family, as we prepare to go back to serve in Lisbon, Paul says in chapter 4, verses 2 through 4, and I ask this of you. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Let me pray. But before I do, just ask yourself, am I raised with Christ? Have I put my faith in Jesus and who he is and what he's done? If you are listening and you believe it, you believe who this Jesus is, you believe in what he's done for you, put your faith in him. There are some pastors that will be up here. Um, you can talk to them more about what that looks like if you have any questions. Um, but let me pray for you. Let me um, pray with me. Jesus, thank you for who you are, our redeemer, our sustainer, our creator, our king. You are God. Thank you. Thank you for who you are, for what you've done. Thank you that you have put on us these beautiful clothes of new life, that you are making us like you, and that you're coming back for us. Thank you that we get to celebrate your coming as we celebrate Christmas. Thank you that it leads us to, to think of what you did on the cross and raising from the dead. Thank you that we get to anticipate as well that you are going to return for us, to make us like you, to live with us, to rule over us, to share with us your glory. Jesus, I pray for anyone here that's heard this for the first time or has believed it for the first time. I pray that they would put their faith in you, that you would give them new life. God, work in everybody's life here. God, that our church, that our community, that your church would be a beautiful representation of you, 
as we wait for you to come. Give us unity and peace and love as we seek to walk raised by you and rooted in you. Jesus, thank you again for who you are, for what you've done for us, for your great grace. It's in your name we pray.